And welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news this week. And Derek, there's a lot of news. So why don't we just get started? And let's start with an update on the Russia Wagner situation. Um, yeah, I mean, we covered this, uh, we covered what happened over the weekend at some length. I don't want to rehash uh, all that stuff. People can go back and listen to the episodes we recorded, the specials we recorded. But um, there has been some activity uh, with respect to both the Russian government and Wagner in the aftermath of the aborted mutiny. Uh, Vladimir Putin, for example, has been probably more publicly visible <laughs> last week than he'd been yeah, uh, in, in years, maybe a year Literally. and a half. I mean, yeah. at least since COVID. I mean, I was going to make a joke that he's been seen more times than uh, in the last week than he has since 2020, but that's probably an exaggeration. Nevertheless, this is not somebody who goes out and about much or uh, talks much on television. He's given a couple of short addresses uh, on TV to kind of, uh, you know, just make it clear that he's in charge. Uh, There's nothing to see here. Nothing's happening. Uh, Everything's functioning the way it's supposed to be functioning. Nothing in his remarks has, has gone very far to kind of make sense of the deal that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, the, the Wagner Group boss, uh, agreed to on Saturday, the one that was uh, brokered by Alexander Lukashenko, the, the president of Belarus. Um, we'll, we'll get to him in a, a moment. But um, oh, yes, we Putin will. has even gone out in public. I, I think he even made some uh, an Eid appearance in Dagestan, which is a, a heavily uh, Muslim part of Russia, and was out like shaking hands and greeting people, which is just something that, that Vladimir Putin does not do. So clearly there's an effort to kind of uh, paint things as uh, everything's okay, everything's back to normal, nothing to worry about. Uh, and they may be trying too hard, uh, is what I'm saying. Vladimir Putin recasts himself as a man of the people during a visit to the southern Russian city of Derbent. People in the crowd beg just one picture an attempt perhaps to project unity and the perception of popular support. Another thing of note with respect to the Russian government, uh, before we get into Wagner's situation, uh, apparently a number of senior generals, uh, top military officials, have not been seen in public since the mutiny, which is interesting. Uh, That includes the chief of staff of the Russian military, uh, Valery Gerasimov, who is... Uh, in addition to being the overall commander of the Russian military, also in charge of the war in Ukraine. Uh, nobody seems to have seen him. I, I don't know if there's anything to make of that. It's not like, uh, again, it's not like this was somebody who's out and about in public all the time anyway. Uh, more interesting is the, there's a lot. there are rumors circulating around Sergei Surovikin, who's the deputy commander in Ukraine, had previously been the, the top commander in Ukraine before Gerasimov kind of uh, big-footed him and took over. Uh, Surovikin served, uh, commanded Russian soldiers in Syria during that intervention. He's been fairly well regarded, I think, uh, uh, you know, for if you're into that sort of thing. Um, he's apparently under suspicion for having uh, collaborated with Prigozhin. 
uh, on what happened over the weekend. Uh, I wouldn't make too, too much of this. This is, uh, you know, obviously secondhand information that comes to Western media. Uh, but not only has he not been seen, there are uh, a number of rumors that he's been had his movements curtailed and maybe uh, in the process of being investigated. Now, Suravikan came out publicly and denounced the mutiny on, uh, as it was happening. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. He may have been playing both uh, ends to see which one came out on top. But it, 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 so it, it is interesting that these stories are, are circulating, and I don't know what to make of them just yet. What is the American response to all of these goings on been? How have the pundits well, reacted? Well, I mean, there's been no overt response to this, to like the, the stories about Suravikan. The, the, the official response from the Biden administration throughout all of this was um, mostly, I think, concern for the possibility of political implosion in Russia and what would happen, what that would mean for the, the Russian nuclear arsenal. Uh, behind the right, scenes, which is the I classic U.S. You. the U.S. Um, fear of Russia, like George H. W. Right. Bush didn't necessarily want the Soviet Union to end. Yeah, right. that's so, this is always I mean, this, this is, is the generational long U.S. ultimate keeping, fear of nuclear right. weapons. Yeah, in keeping with uh, you know, and given that we have a still have a member of the greatest generation as president. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, officially, the the I, I would say you know there's been some kind of comments about what it means for Putin's stability or his future that's in in keeping with a lot of think pieces that have been written over the last few days and certainly a lot of comments that have come from uh, the Ukrainian government and and some other quarters suggesting that Putin's done for this is it this is like you know we've pulled back the curtain on the wizard and and uh, his time is up uh, i think that's i'm mostly wish casting but uh, you know obviously we'll see how it plays out uh, in terms of Wagner, Prigozhin is officially now in Belarus, as far as I know. Uh, Lukashenko confirmed that a couple of days ago. There are indications of work being done on a Belarusian military facility that could house around 8,000 men that may be in preparation for all or most of the fighters who were with Prigozhin in his little adventure over the weekend to go with him. So, wait, hold on. so that he might be sending uh, his mercenary group with him. I mean, Derek, this seems like not they're making all a of classic... it. Not, not all of it. Now, we don't a know quarter numbers. of it? <laughs> well, we don't know numbers, right? We don't know how strong Wagner was uh, after the Bakhmut operation. I mean, supposedly he had in the tens of thousands uh, of soldiers, True. but that was a very long battle that was conducted, you know, without... Seemingly so they're, a lot of but they're still for sending the core, right? I mean, like it, se- it seems well, to some degree that they there's a chance, maybe. Yes, no, I, I mean, Prigozhin claimed that he had twenty five thousand soldiers with him when he went into Russia, and he put twenty thousand of them in Rostov on Don, and then took five thousand or ordered five thousand to march on Moscow. That's all. That all seems like it was bullshit. Uh, at most, I think the assessments have been he he may have had this eight thousand man core like with Praetorian him. Now, guard around what him. What that means. As a percentage of Wagner's total strength, I don't think anybody knows because right. nobody knows really what Wagner's total strength is. The Russians have been insisting that there are Wagner fighters who did not participate in this thing. They, Putin's been uh, thanking right. been these big, people, whoever they note. are, <laughs> um, and they've been they've been you know dangling this uh, offer to join the Russian military. Not that I think that's a a, a real. Uh, 
real reward for anything, but they've been supposedly uh, leaving that out there for Wagner fighters who didn't participate. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know. I mean, this this facility, if it holds 8,000 people, if that's how many were with Prigozhin, they will be going to Belarus. And I don't know what they're going to be doing there. Um, Wagner's operations may continue overseas. There's been some confusing signals sent uh, by the Russian government, I think, over the past few days. Some, uh, you know, some of the messages that come out of Moscow seem to suggest that they are going to directly take over operations like uh, the Central African operation that Wagner was, was, uh, you know, had undertaken, uh, like Wagner's operations in Mali. But then there are other comments like Sergei Lavrov uh, a few days ago said, you know, Wagner's going to keep uh, keep doing these. These operations aren't going to, there's not going to be any interruption or changeover. It'll still be Wagner. Does that mean it's going to be Prigozhin necessarily? No. I, I mean, there could be a change in uh, management ordered from the top, I guess. I, I, yeah, it's, this it's is really, really quite interesting. Unclear. And then you add Belarus into it as an X factor and, and the relationship between Belarus and Russia in the last few well, it's, years. Yeah, I mean, and, and the relationship between Belarus and all of its uh, other neighbors, which is not good, uh, it hasn't been good for, for no, several years terrible, now. There's been yeah. already uh, a lot of kind of panicky sounding statements from uh, NATO members in the neighborhood asking for more troop deployments, more security uh, to just because I guess, you know, they view Wagner's presence there as a potential threat. I don't know if like, you know, the Polish government thinks that Prigozhin and his 8,000 guys are just going to come traipsing over the border. Uh, I suspect that what they really want is for NATO to foot the bill for their uh, national security to a greater extent. Uh, but you know that's uh, yeah. Who, cynical me. Who knows? It's just very interesting given the the longer term history of this region of the sort of liminal space between Eastern Europe and Russia. Because at at points in the last thousand or so years, it's been quite stable. But really, since World War One, it's been this cauldron of violence. Um, it, it's a really interesting space. And actually, t- friend of the pod, Timothy Snyder, his book Bloodlands is actually quite good on this. It go goes into the violence of this space. Um, and yeah, and Bloodlands. What it says. Uh, I recommend. I don't recommend following like his Twitter feed or no, reading no, anything no, no. that he's written in the last five years. No, but, but but it is it is his scholarship is good. Yeah, that that book in particular, it, and it just um, it really highlights this region's compelling history that it is it has been really fucked over since the age of nationalism you know this former core of empires just got so fucked by it um okay let's move on to turkey sweden and nato so um as people presumably know next month nato is holding it is still technically next month yes it's only the 29th uh, NATO is holding a summit in Lithuania and Vilnius, uh, at which one of the big, uh, markers or one of the big highlights, uh, my most family's of the from Vilnius, hoping, Derek, uh, well, aside from the, the <laughs> tribute to the Bessner family that I'm sure they will be, uh, they will be, uh, undertaking, uh, most Alliance members have been hoping to finally unveil Sweden, uh, as the newest and, uh, latest and greatest member of NATO, uh, the Turkish government has been s- blocking Sweden's membership for months now. It's been refusing to hold a vote. It's been demanding 
various things uh, that that the Swedish government uh, cracked down on Kurdish groups like the, the Kurdistan Workers Party uh, or the Gulen, any Gulenists who are in uh, Sweden. There are a number of people who the, the Turkish authorities would like to talk to uh, who are apparently in Sweden. They'd like, you know, extradition. They'd like uh, a number of things, let's just say. Uh, and progress has been slow going. I think there was some hope that after the election, the Turkish election, either way, uh, that that the Turkish government would be more amenable to uh, dropping this this block it's been holding on on Sweden. Uh, that clearly has not played out. Of recent note, uh, I believe over the weekend, or no, it was on Wednesday. Sorry, there was a, a small protest outside the largest mosque in Stockholm at which one of the protesters uh, decided to defile and burn a copy of the Quran. This protester filmed outside Stockholm's central mosque, held up a Quran only to tear up its pages, wipe his shoes with it and light it on fire. That man has now been charged by police with agitation against an ethnic or national group. That hasn't gone over well, as you might expect, throughout the Islamic world, not just in Turkey, but there have been condemnations from multiple governments uh, protests, uh, I think, in, in Baghdad outside the, the Swedish embassy, for example. Um, so yeah, this is another one of the, the Turks' demands, which is they want Swedish authorities to crack down on these kind of anti-Turkish or anti-Islam protests. There are, certain, of course, free speech implications there, uh, you know, leaving aside the specific issue of uh, letting people burn a Quran, which I, you know, I realize may be debatable. Just a blanket ban on protests so for for something like that is, you know, got to be something that the Swedish government, is, you know, a good liberal Western government, uh, would have to to take issue with. Yeah, and prides itself as such in terms of its national identity. Right, you know, right. A, a lot of those Nordic countries are like, you know, the, the font of Protestant liberalism and envision themselves as such. And this is something that like directly challenges, you know, that yeah, secular. Yeah, exactly. It's you like know, that's why it's the, so interesting with Turkey. Yeah. Identity. yeah. The other development I think that's that's noteworthy here is that the Hungarian parliament, Hungary being the only other country in NATO that has yet to ratify Sweden's accession, was supposed to vote, I think, next week. Uh, and a Hungary, you know, Hungarian leaders have all kind of uniformly said that they want Sweden in the alliance. They have some issues that they're, they've been trying to iron out with, with the Swedish government, but they, you know, in general, support Sweden's bid. Uh, nevertheless, they keep refusing to vote. And I, I think the indication that I would take from the fact that they were supposed to vote next week and have now postponed that vote until... Sometime this autumn, which sounds like it would be certainly after uh, the Vilnius summit, the indication I would take from that is that they don't think Turkey's going to move on this issue before the summit. And so they don't really see any need to stick their necks out uh, and move on it either. Um, there was also a report in uh, Al Monitor, which is a, a site that covers kind of Middle East, uh, North Africa, that, that uh, region, uh, a couple of days ago that, that said the Turkish government was also objecting to the other big thing that's supposed to come out of this summit, which is the adoption of NATO defense strategy plans really for the first time since the Cold War. They're, they're developing these things again in, uh, you know, in the good old days in response to, to Russia. Uh, but the Turks are, are supposedly objecting to a, a number of these plans. They have various reasons, and, and not all of them have been 
made public. There's there's uh, a bit to do with NATO's relationship with Cyprus, and of course Turkey and the Cypriot government don't uh, get along very well because Tur- Turkey supports the Turkish Cypriot separatists in the northern part of the the island. There's also a complaint that I guess the documents refer to the Dardanelles and the Bosporus, the two straits that connect the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, as just straits instead of Turkish straits, which is the typical NATO terminology is to refer to them as the Turkish straits. Uh, It's unclear why these plans don't refer to them that way, but this is another thing that's sort of sticking, uh, I guess, in (laughs) Turkey's cross. So there may be a real fun time next month at uh, at this summit. Uh, if some, if this, at least some of these things don't get ironed out, and of course, there's speculation that uh, what Turkey really is trying to do is is pressure the U.S. for arms deals and and you know that sort of thing. The F-16, they they have a an F-16 major F-16 purchase of new new F-16s plus kits to to modernize their current F-16s that's been tabled for a while now, but but can't get approval in D.C. because of tensions in the U.S.-Turkey relationship over a variety of things. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that may underpin some of this, that they're, they're just trying to create leverage to get that through. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, so, yeah, there's not uh, a terribly much to say in terms of progress. I, I, there was a, a sketchy report earlier this week based on some pro-Russian, like, uh, you know, pro-war telegram channels, people monitoring these things, that suggested that uh, the Ukrainians had crossed the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, which is really where the it's been flooded since the destruction of the, the dam a few weeks ago. If that's true, then they may be attempting to make a, a, a strike at the southern part of Kherson or even... That's that's fairly close to Crimea. They could even be trying to threaten Crimea, but I haven't seen anything else about that apart from this that that one sketchy report. So I, I wouldn't uh, make too much of it. There was an, an incident on Tuesday. A Russian missile struck a restaurant in the city of Kramatorsk, which is in Donetsk Oblast. And uh, if the Russians, if or when the Russians get back on the offensive, would probably be their next main target. Uh, that killed, I believe, now 12 people with dozens more wounded. The the Russians are insisting, uh, absent any hard evidence, I think that this was a military target. I think they said they killed a, a couple of Ukrainian generals who were, I guess, eating at the restaurant. I don't know. Uh, but uh, this seems to have gotten a lot of attention uh, just for the fact that it was uh, uh, clearly or at least on his face anyway, uh, obviously civilian target, and and, uh, the death toll has been uh, fairly high for a single strike. The other thing to note, I guess, is there's a report in the Wall Street Journal uh, just uh, today, uh, Thursday, uh, that suggests the Ukrainians are now going to try and make a push to take back Bakhmut uh, from the Russians. They're going to try, I guess they feel in the wake of the Wagner uprising, that there's some chaos on the Russian front line. I don't know that there's uh, much evidence of this, uh, nor is there any necessarily reason that there would be chaos on the front line because Wagner's fighters weren't on the front line anymore. Uh, nevertheless, this seems to be uh, the, the, uh, at least an idea that's bouncing around uh, the Ukrainians to try and retake that city 
now, you know, with uh, whatever they think is going on in the Russian uh, forces. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about the Greek election. Just briefly, uh, the uh, conservative New Democracy Party won uh, a snap parliamentary election on Sunday. This was expected. Uh, it took 40.5% of the vote, uh, finishing well ahead of Syriza, the left-wing Syriza party, which was at 18%. Gre- this was a snap uh, I remember election. when Greece was the land of dreams like oh, 10 God, years ago. Yeah. Well, this is, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm kind of getting to that. I, uh, well, I should just, uh, uh, Cyprus, the 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 leader of Syriza, former prime minister, has resigned as as party leader in the wake of this dismal showing. The other thing to uh, of note is that this this was a snap election because it, because the previous election in May, uh, which was the the regularly scheduled general election, uh, was conducted under different electoral rules. New Democracy won just uh, pretty much the same by the same margin. Uh, that it won this month's election, but because of the electoral rules, they didn't gain as many seats, uh, so they fell short of a sole majority in Parliament, and uh, party leader Kyriakos Mitsotakis, who's now Prime Minister, was Prime Minister, is now Prime Minister again, just rejected the idea of forming a coalition and decided to force a snap election, which was conducted under different, somewhat different electoral rules that favored large vote getters and and obviously that was what uh, you know that that favored new democracy and they were able to take uh, a handful more seats and enough to give them a majority thanks derek uh, let's talk about israel palestine and uh, biden is apparently cutting funding for institutions on the west bank yes uh, the biden administration has advised federal agencies to stop funding research at israeli institutions that are located in the west bank this is uh, in keeping with traditional U.S. policy. That, uh, it's a policy that was reversed by the Trump administration. The Trump administration essentially wanted to recognize de facto Israeli annexation of the West Bank uh, is the bottom line. Uh, so this is a restoration of the old U.S. policy regarding these institutions. Nevertheless, uh, as you might imagine, it's drawn quite a bit of criticism from expected quarters, uh, enthusiastic ethnic cleansing, for example, uh, they've compared uh, the new policy to the, or conflated it with uh, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, although uh, BDS calls for boycotting Israel proper, not institutions in the West Bank. So it's not really the same thing. And again, it is, it is a return to what had been uh, the previous U.S. policy. Thank you, Derek. Uh, let's talk about what's been going on in Sudan. Uh, yes, there's been heavy fighting, uh, as usual, I guess, in the capital area. This is uh, the city of Khartoum, plus its sister cities at the uh, confluence of the, the Niles, uh, Bahri and Omdurman. Uh, there was a report over the weekend uh, that seems to have been borne out that the Rapid Support Forces, uh, which is one of the two combatants here, along with the, Su- the Sudanese military, had taken control of a central, the Central Reserve Police headquarters. The Central Reserve Police is a paramilitary organization. It's quite large, uh, well-equipped. Uh, they had taken control of the, the police base, their uh, headquarters in southern Khartoum. Uh, there's been apparently heavy fighting around that facility since then. The, the two sides did technically agree to a truce uh, that was supposed to last over the Eid al-Adha holiday, uh, it 
they, they, there was no indication of even a lull in fighting. I think they just kept fighting right through it despite having uh, both announced these, uh, declared these truces. The the pattern here, especially in the Capitol, and again, you know, there, there's, uh, of course, information or news continuing to come in or reports of fighting in Darfur, in Blue Nile State now, in uh, the Kordofans, North and South Kordofan states. But the the main reporting has come out of the capital region. That's where the the best information uh, has been available. And the pattern generally seems to be that the RSF is is winning on the ground. The R- RSF fighters have uh, more experience in combat. They, they're not as well equipped as the Sudanese military, but they seem to be more effective. Uh, and they've been able to gain continuously kind of gain ground. Uh, around the city, around the three-city area. Uh, the Sudanese military tries to use its advantages in artillery and especially air power, uh, but it's, it, it always comes in late after you, the RSF has made an advance uh, and then tries to bomb them, you know, out, try to drive them out of wherever, whatever they've just taken, and that doesn't seem to be uh, working. There was a report in, in, from Reuters on Wednesday uh, that the military is starting to turn to former Sudanese intelligence operatives uh, who who probably do have more combat experience than the average Sudanese soldier, uh, and who are linked with the Islamist movement that was uh, associated with former President Omar al Bashir. This is interesting because the the Sudanese military commander Abdel Fattah al Burhan uh, has repeatedly denied making any kind of alliance with uh, these Islamist elements, uh, despite mounting evidence that. Uh, that he has, in fact, done that. And there are there, there's a possibility that some of his international support, especially Egypt, which has traditionally been the big backer of uh, the Sudanese military and is currently under a very anti-Islamist government uh, in uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi, uh, they, may, you know, they may have some issues here if, Burhan, if it turns out that Burhan is working with these guys. But uh, nothing has, has developed uh, far enough to, to get to that point. Thanks, Derek. And uh, let's talk about, I think we mentioned it last week, Mali kicking out UN peacekeepers. Yes. Uh, the UN, after a, a few days, uh, we mentioned last week that the, the Malian junta had asked or uh, requested that the UN shut down its peacekeeping operation. Um, there was some question about whether the UN would actually do that. It, it has apparently decided, that the UN Security Council has decided uh, to close down the peacekeeping operation. There's going to be a vote, I believe, on Friday that would terminate the peacekeeping operation. Uh, there's still some question as to how long uh, it would uh, prescribe for peacekeepers to leave Mali. Uh, there's a draft circulating uh, kind of over the weekend and earlier this week that was written, I believe, by f- the French government or the French delegation that allowed for a six-month timeline uh, for forces to withdraw. The the Malian government, or the Malian junta, uh, didn't like that. They were requesting something shorter than that, uh, given their relationships with veto-holding members of the council, Russia and China in particular. Uh, there's some, you know, there was some chance that uh, one or both of them could exercise a veto to block a, a resolution that included a a six-month withdrawal timetable. So the vote that was supposed to be held uh, today, in fact, on Thursday, has been postponed to Friday at least. Uh, I believe it's now uh, on the schedule to happen on Friday, but clearly there was some uh, discussion about this, and I don't think we'll know uh, really until the the 
final draft is is adopted. Um, possibly what they'll do is they'll say something like, uh, you know, there's a maximum of six months for these forces to withdraw, but, you know, we're expecting them to uh, withdraw as, as quickly as possible or some, something vague, kind of a vague compromise like that. Uh, there are thousands, I think 13,000 uh, or so peacekeepers uh, in Mali right now uh, there are uh, associated maybe they can go to Belarus from other countries. Yeah, maybe they could go to Belarus. Why not? Uh, build them a little base, give them some tactical nukes, let them let them go wild. Uh, the uh, there are affiliated forces like uh, there's there's a contingent of German soldiers in Mali who uh, I don't believe are directly under the UN command, but are affiliated with the mission. And then there's all the staff. There's all the kind of staff that goes along with something like this and the support units. And, and so it's going to take a while. What I'm saying is it's going to take a while for these people to leave if they want to do it in an orderly fashion and not make a mess of it. Uh, I don't know that it would take six months, but but it will take some period of time to, to wind this down. It's been, I mean, it's been in Mali for over a decade at this point, so around a decade. Uh, yeah, lots so, of institutions, uh, relationships. Know, lots of stuff to, to, yeah. to break up and, and pack up. Let's stay in the UN and talk about its report on Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh, yeah, I would recommend uh, folks who read Spencer Ackerman's Forever Wars. Uh, he's written about this, but the UN uh, rapporteur uh, who's been in charge of monitoring things at, at Guantanamo uh, issued a report on Monday that's really quite scathing and uh, demands that uh, the U.S. government not only release the, the I think, 30 people uh, remaining in custody at Guantanamo, but that it uh, make reparations for the torture that these people uh, suffered. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to make too much of this because the U.S. will undoubtedly, U.S. government will undoubtedly just ignore it, like it does with any international law that doesn't uh, go our way. But it is, it is a, a striking document. Some of the things that are said in here, and uh, just the, uh, the the criticisms of the U.S. coming from. Uh, a UN uh, operation are, I think, uh, noteworthy. Hasn't happened in a while. Um, no. Let's talk about something extraordinarily depressing, uh, which is the recent report on rainforest loss. Yes. Uh, this is a new report from the World Resources Institute and the University of Maryland that finds that in 2022, uh, around well, an, an area of rainforest uh, roughly equivalent to the size of uh, the country of Switzerland was destroyed uh, around the world. Most of it in, uh, I believe, Bolivia, Brazil, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, although on a kind of a, a, a relative level, Ghana apparently uh, lost the most in terms of how much rainforest uh, is actually in Ghana versus how much was lost. Uh, but in absolute terms, it was it was Brazil, the DRC, and, and Bolivia. So, for example, the further we move in there, the more contact we have with wildlife, and the more likely it is that you know viruses from that wildlife might spill over to us humans and cause another pandemic. Or if we go in there to mine, that contaminates local rivers. So, for example, in the case of gold, that's a lot of mercury that's going in the water and contaminating fish. And obviously, that's terrible for the indigenous people eating that fish. There's a lot to unpack here. Obviously, there's there's a tremendous amount of instability in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, in Brazil, last year, they were still under Jair Bolsonaro's government, and Bolsonaro was, uh, you know, if you would have handed him a, a blowtorch, he would have probably 
burned out the rainforest on his own if if uh, you asked him to. Uh, new, you know, new president uh, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva has has said he wants to prioritize uh, pr- protecting the rainforest, uh, and there are indications that he's taken steps in that direction. Uh, he and other major rainforest countries, again, the DRC being one of them, Indonesia, uh, the governments of those countries have been trying, uh, I think, negotiating to form a, a sort of rainforest block that would demand uh, international support for protecting the rainforest, which I think is uh, entirely justified. So, you know, there is some positive political movement on this front, but the, yeah, the, the actual practical news is not, is not good. Thanks, Derek. Uh, it really, climate news, it just gets worse and worse. I don't think I, I've read in, in a while something that, you know, we were wrong. It's actually going to be less horrible. It seems every report. No, I really think that um, the La Nina, I mean, uh, the, the La Nina over the last several years has kind of lulled people into a false sense of like, this isn't, I mean, it's bad, but it's not as bad as yeah, it's about uh, to get we terrible. Were thinking. Yeah. And now, you know, now that that's shifted to an El Nino, uh, it's it's like, oh, wow, uh, this is really bad. I, how did it get this bad? And all the figures are, you know, people seem to be really surprised with uh, what they're seeing. Like climate people seem to be surprised with what they're seeing, which is not not good. Uh, yeah, they, they had like, yeah, we didn't think it was this bad. It's basically a right. report. Exactly. Uh, let's do a little new Cold War update. And let's start with China's meeting with New Zealand. Uh, yes. So uh, Chris Hipkins, the prime minister of New Zealand, visited China this week. Uh, he had uh, apparently a cordial meeting with uh, Xi Jinping, uh, came away with a number of uh, new agreements uh, with very specific sounding things like Establish a dialogue mechanism on new energy vehicles. That's that's uh, that's one. Strengthen trade and expand cooperation. That's another. So nothing nothing really tangible. Uh, all very vague and and kind of good good feelings oriented. Uh, but I think the the outcome, the trip itself, and the outcome is is noteworthy in that uh, New Zealand stands apart from the rest of its compatriots in, for example, the Five Eyes Alliance, which is the uh, intelligence sharing uh, group with Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US, uh, all of whom have, you know, their relationships with China are varying degrees of lousy. Uh, New Zealand kind of stands apart in in that it's still maintaining a fairly friendly relationship uh, with Beijing. And I wonder how much longer that can continue. Uh, One could see this, uh, see New Zealand as a sort of a conduit for improving relations between the rest of uh, the West and uh, and China, but I suspect that uh, it's going to go the other direction, and there's going to be increasing pressure moving forward on New Zealand to to kind of coarsen the relationship, let's say, with China. Um, there there was a one bit of uh, positive news, I guess, uh, on the U.S. China front. Uh, the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian. And Pacific Affairs, Daniel Crittenbrink, was speaking at a think tank this week uh, and said that the U.S. Uh, and Chinese governments have agreed to uh, discuss adding more direct passenger flights between the two countries, which is a, seems like a relatively minor thing, except that uh, currently there are only 24 direct flights between the U.S. and China per week. Uh, this is compared with pre-COVID. Uh, the pre-COVID norm was about 350 flights per week. So um, things have gotten 
much worse in that regard. And again, I mean, it's just sort of a an indication of how much coarser this relationship has has gotten. Obviously, COVID was the initial uh, impetus for cutting those flights, but but it's been impossible essentially because of geopolitical hostility to get back to that level or get anywhere near that level. So the the fact that they're talking about this is probably not a bad thing. And let's conclude with an interesting survey by Pew that basically says everyone loves the United States. Derek, what do you make of this bad boy? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Pew does this uh, does this uh, survey every year. It picks, uh, in this case, it was 23 countries and, you know, just takes a sample in each country and asks them about their, their opinions of the United States and uh, the United States uh, role in the world and the U.S. versus other countries, China being the, the big one. And yeah, they, they found, I mean, consistently over the last three surveys now, I guess, uh, not coincidentally, uh, since Joe Biden replaced Donald Trump, uh, they found the global image of the United States is, uh, has improved quite a bit. It, it reached uh, a, a nadir uh, under Trump, I guess, not surprisingly. And it's, it's gotten dark, its dark bounce Biden, back. Right? Wait, is uh, Dark Biden good or right? He's good, right? Dark Brandon, yeah. Dark no, Brandon, he's, he's yeah, a good guy. Dark Brandon, right? we love Dark Brandon. Yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> uh, so uh, this year, uh, the uh, the median figure was fifty four percent. So if you look at these twenty three countries, the uh, the median majority, I guess, was fifty four percent that who uh, have confidence in Biden to do the right thing uh, globally uh, against thirty nine percent, the median of thirty nine percent who don't trust him. Uh, to do the right thing. The U.S. favorability rating is approaching 60%. You know, there's been some shifting around in these countries uh, kind of from country to country in, in terms of how they view the U.S., but overall, things have remained uh, fairly steadily positive. Uh, another thing that I, I thought was uh, interesting uh, is that the uh, almost half uh, of the... Uh, Countries served well. Okay, I'll just read from the the Pew report. In roughly half of the nations surveyed, the share of the public that thinks the U.S. considers other countries uh, is higher than it has ever been since Pew Research Center started asking this question. My heart is two decades ago, which is fascinating. And this is an an issue that uh, we've talked about sometimes. you know, friend of the show, Bob Wright, talks about this a lot, writes about it a lot. Dude, Cognitive wait, I, Derek, empathy, I have a question. Ability to, American yeah. Prestige is up since American Prestige, the podcast, has debuted. Do you hmm, think that's, that's a coincidence? Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting angle. We could we could run with that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I just think it's interesting because this is a, a glaring deficit. It's a, a function of the president, in, obviously. In U.S. foreign policy. And I think... Um, it, it is a function of the president. President, I mean, people are are happy overall. It seems to to be dealing with Joe Biden instead of instead of Donald Trump. But that particular question, the the U, does the U.S. consider other countries, and the fact that it's even higher than it was under, let's say, Barack Obama, uh, is is interesting to me. I don't think there's been. I can't see that much of a change in terms of the U.S. actually considering other countries' interests. But maybe we're getting better at like faking it. I don't know. 
I, I, I think people don't like China, and there's genuine fear of China. Um, uh, there is, there that, is that's, genuine I think fear there's of China, a lot of that's that. for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whether well-founded or not, I think that actually explains quite a bit of it. Um, well, Derek, thank you so much. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like us, please spread us around. Please consider subscribing, because we love you all like our own children. Derek, I will see you soon. Bye. Bye. This is call sign Prestige. Permission to open up on this balloon bogey? Roger that. Take him out. Put that shit on TikTok. New Cold War. New Cold War. New Cold War. New Cold War. Before I came to office, the story was about how the People's Republic of China was increasing its power and America was failing in the world. Not anymore. We'll roast your ass and we'll give you cash.